Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are tribal animals and that we thrive the most and we're the healthiest when we live in community in close contact with one another in small tribes. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of meeting with Dr. Richard Dixie. Now, this is going to be an interesting story for you all, because Dr. Richard Dixie is both a biophysicist and a Buddhist priest. Now, I got a copy of his book, and the name of the book, well, it's one of his books, but the name of this one for today is called Three Minutes a Day. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Here it is. Okay. Three Minutes a Day, a 14-week course to learning meditation and transform your life. Now, typically, when I see something like this come across my screen, you know, like another, let's do this faster. How can you only exercise six minutes a day and get a full exercise? How can you eat hardly anything and still, you know what I'm saying, just another book about how you can do something faster. When I get those, I pretty much chuck them aside because I figure it's just another, you know, snake oil in some way. However, when a biophysicist who's a Buddhist priest, who's also married to Tartang, Tartang Tulko Rinpoche's eldest daughter, brings us a book like this, I pay attention and I am so glad that he's with us. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health and Politics, Richard. Thank you. Great introduction. <laughs> Glad you got a kick out of my introduction. So tell us about this. I mean, this is a phenomenal thing. You are telling us that we can do 14 weeks in a row of meditation and we will change our lives significantly. And I want you to know that I started doing it, but I haven't had time to do the whole 14 weeks yet. So with that intro, Tell us a little about your, your new innovation. Okay. It's not really an innovation, but I think it's important to see what I, where I'm coming from here. To me, meditation is a life skill that goes along with reading and writing. Honestly, I think we should be have reading, writing, and meditation in third grade. The question is, why is it a life skill? Why is it such an important skill to develop? And why is it only a skill and nothing else? And so this is we get into the whole thing. So let's start from basics. Okay, the let's do it. Yeah, the only experience I ever have, you ever have, Albert Einstein ever had, I don't care who you tell me, the only experience they ever had was either one of the five senses or thoughts and imaginations. Normally it's six. You don't talk about the six sense gates. So it's either five senses or it is thoughts and imaginations. That's all we ever experience. Everything else is an inference. That's to say from the five senses, thoughts and imaginations, we make a world. For example, we don't see three dimensions. We see two different images 
one from each eye, and our brain integrates them together and produces an experience of perspective. The perspective we see is actually constructed by our brain in exactly the same way what we hear is actually coming from phase differences from one ear and the other, so we get a sense of space and direction. Our body image is made from stress receptors in our skin, in our hands and musculature, and that's what creates a body image. The whole thing is an image. It's an inferential construct. Now, the, if we were just a camera or if we were just a recording device, that's to say the construct we made was exactly the way things are, there'd be no issue. The problem is it isn't. The construct we make is conditioned, it's colored, it's influenced by everything we know, all of our prior experience, etc. I'll get into that as to why that is in a minute. As a result, the world we see is not actually the way things are, it's the way things we construct them to be, which is why people disagree, why they argue, why there are fundamental differences of view about the same material. You're saying that 10 different people look at the same thing and they're liable to see 10 different things because of what each person adds yeah. themselves? Sure. What each person Thank adds, you. what each person thinks it means, etc., etc. Meditation is the skill to see the construct. If you can see the construct, you can have freedom from this fundamental conditioning element, which is essentially a prisoner. It is making, it's enclosing us in a model of the world, which we don't understand. And if we can't see it, we are in a very real sense, fundamentally ignorant of our condition. So that's what meditation is about. Now, it is a life skill. It's a life skill like any other life skill. It's not particularly religious. It's come to us from the great Asian wisdom traditions, where it was developed by monks in their practice of Buddhism and other spiritual practices. And as a result, it comes with a lot of dressing, which could be described as religious. But in its essence, meditation is not a religious activity. It is merely an activity of addressing perception itself and trying to get to grips with it. Now, this is a skill that can be learned relatively easily and relatively quickly. Although everyone's used to sit for one hour, sit for two hours, all that stuff, that's because it's those sorts of techniques were developed by monks. And of course, you know, sitting for hours is a monk's day job. That's what monks do for a living. We aren't monks. We're lay people. And so sitting for an hour or two hours is really not an option for most people. However, right. you can get the fundamental skill you need to see the construct in a much shorter time. And that's essentially what this book is about. This book is about explaining how we can get to grips with this process of inferential uh, generation, which we all have in us the whole time, and B, how we can generate little insight after little insight after little insight that builds up to a knowledge of how to meditate, which is essentially what we're trying to get to. So that's what the book is about. It's not 
Yeah, you could call it snake oil, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe this time the snake oil works. But the truth is, you can learn to meditate in very short periods. And indeed, there are many completely authentic meditation traditions that do exactly that. They don't stress long periods of practice. Of course, if you get good at it, you can do long periods of practice by all means. That's fine. But that's not the objective. The objective is to see conditioned responsiveness, what I call reflexive reactivity. If we can catch sight of reflexive reactivity, we can truly transform everything. Because I, I, let me interrupt for a second, Richard. Oh. I'd like you to go a little deeper into reflexive reactivity oh. and to make to make certain that we all understand what you mean by that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, okay. So as I said, all we get are five senses, thoughts, and imaginations. That's all we receive. Would it be safe to say the five senses plus what each of us adds? Thoughts and Is that another? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Okay. That's the five whole thing. senses for clarification for our listeners and readers. The five senses plus the whatever it is that each of us adds to whatever we're seeing or hearing. Yeah. Five senses. Thank you. Go, go ahead. So it's like a city with six gates. That's all we get. Everything else is made. So when we talk about the world, we're actually talking about an inference we have made from our five senses, thoughts, and imaginations. That's where that inference has come from. We learn about it at school. We learn a whole bunch of words. We learn a whole bunch of ideas, and we call it the world. Now, of course, none of us experiences the world. The idea of there being a world that you could actually experience like that is a little crazy when you think about it. But that's what we use in our language. We talk about the world. We're very interested in learning about the world. Now, what, what is actually going on in this process of world making? Well, the great skill that homo sapiens, human beings, have is the ability to learn from experience. Learning from experience is essentially what took a naked ape from wandering around on the Serengeti being prowled by saber-toothed tigers to driving around in sports cars and causing global warming. That was the capacity that enabled us to go beyond our physical limitations. Now, learning from experience is precisely having an experience, remembering it, first me memorizing it, then remembering it, and using it to change your subsequent behavior. So this inferential construct is very, very valuable. Make no mistake about it. It's how we learn about the world. The problem is, what happens if some of the things that we learned were merely accidental? Or maybe they were bad things, or maybe they were problems. They all get stuck into our inferences as well. So we land up with two consequences. One is we're always reflexively reacting to what we think is there when we actually made it ourselves. And secondly, we may land up with wrong views about what's actually happening, again, because of what we bought to the construct. Now, it's reflexive because it happens very quickly. 
And the reason why the construct is made very quickly is to enable us to be responsive. So, for example, if you see pointy ears in the bushes and you are a, you know, an unarmed guy living in the, in the jungle, it's good for you to go, oh my God, that might be a tiger and run. You don't want to be thinking about it. You want to be reacting immediately. That reactivity is protective. So as a result, we're being pulled this way and that by things we are reacting to. And of course, we now carry around mobile phones and we carry around these devices. And these mobile phones are full of messaging, making us react. So modernity is making us more and more and more reactive. And people are suffering from alienation and exhaustion because their reactivity is being pulled this way and that. Enter meditation. So meditation is about becoming initially less reactive. Just becoming less reactive is a major fruit of a meditation practice. Now, to become less reactive, one has to understand how it is that we are being triggered into reactivity in the first place. If we could understand that, if we could get a grip on why it is we're being triggered like that, we could become less reactive. There's no point in saying, I'm going to be less reactive, because that isn't going to work. All one does then is try and shut yourself off in some kind of aspect so nothing affects you. What you really want to be able to do is to have reactivity itself as an object of cognition, something you could actually see. Now, this is possible if you develop a meditation practice. And it comes down to understanding a key element of our cognition, namely attention. How our attention is captured by things that we appear to see. Now, this issue of having your attention captured, the proper term for it is your attention is adverted. If your attention is adverted, it means something has caught your eye. This is where the word advertisement comes from. An advertisement is something that catches your eye. The problem is we have on our mobile phones and now with chat GBT, etc., devices precisely designed to catch our eye, take our attention to one thing or another. So the first thing a meditator does is they simplify these six channels I talked about, the five senses, thoughts and imaginations. They simplify those six channels and say, OK, I'll just look at one. And I start the book off with the visual channel. Just look. Don't try to hear or anything. Just look. What one is trying to do is to simplify the experience that's coming in and then work with attention. Because attention is the key to reflexive reactivity. So the first thing any meditator does is they learn to pay attention. Indeed, all of us, you know, anybody educated in a contemporary way knows how to pay attention. I mean, their mummy has said it. Johnny, pay attention. You know, the, the school teacher, pay attention. You know, this is one of the things that, you know, contemporary educated people are very good at. However, that kind of adverted attention is brittle. That's to say, if you pay attention to one thing, something else happens, 
you're suddenly paying attention to that and you're paying attention to this. You're being pulled this way and that by your brittle attentiveness. So base camp number one in any meditation practice is to make attention stable. This stability is called shamatha. It literally means calmness. You become calm. And to do that, you have to discover relatively easily that there is in, in attention actually two elements. And this is a great gift from the Asian meditation traditions. The first element is adverting, to pay attention. The second element is to savor. Now, savoring requires attention. If you don't have the ability to pay attention, you can't then savor what you're attending to. But savoring is actually a different faculty from merely paying attention. And if you develop savoring, technically in Pali and Sanskrit, it's called vikara. If you develop savoring, you can make your attention stable. And the reason is because if you savor, then when something else comes along to disturb you, you merely incorporate that other thing into your savored experience. Now, savoring is quite literally what you see an antique dealer do when they pick up an object and they go, oh, look at this thing. Ah, oh, yes, it's one of these amazing watches. I've seen one of these before. They're kind of feeling it. They're engaging with it. They're not merely looking at it. They're actually engaging. It's engaged attention is another way you can put it. Quite literally, it's the, it, the metaphor is very simple. You lift a cup of coffee to your lips. That's attending. And then you taste the coffee. That's savoring. Now, savoring and attending together can form a stable base. And that stable base is something you can build on to begin to address reactivity, which is the major problem in modernity. It is why people are not reporting that they're getting happier and happier and happier, even though people have better phones, better health care, longer lives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's because As a matter of fact, in the United States right now, it's just the opposite. People are not only not getting happier, they're getting more depressed and more anxious. I, interview, I interviewed a, a demographics uh, uh, a expert from uh, Johns Hopkins recently, and she told me that 30 to 40 percent of the United States right now is suffering from anxiety and depression. Precisely. And where's that coming from? It's coming from out of control reactivity. Now, let's look at this. This is very, very interesting, actually. Just this general point. We are living within an amazing six channel processor that is processing six channels of information at all times. Actually, it's refreshing itself about 20 times a second and producing maps of the world. This is how Homo sapiens, as I say, has come from being a naked ape to dominating the planet. However, the map making is protective. It is there to give us a long life, not necessarily a happy life, just a long one. It's protective. That means the only thing the map maker is interested in is bad news. 
He doesn't care about good news. This is why the papers, the internet feeds, the TV channels are full of bad news. I am more interested to read about a mudslide in Argentina than I am to read about the fact that someone down the road was friendly to a stranger. The bad news interests me. The good news doesn't. That is because the map maker is interested only in bad news. Do I have to change anything? Is there something else I should change? Now, this would be fine if we only had a little bit of news. The problem is we're carrying around these mobile phone devices. We've got the internet and everything else firing bad news at us the whole time. So our reactivity is being triggered. And whether it's buy a Rolex, you'll be a better person, or oh, look what's happened in this earthquake. Good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. Our attention's being adverted all over the place. It is exhausting. And modernity is getting more and more and more exhausting. And indeed, with the arrival of artificial intelligence, we we're only at the beginning of what this Richard, is. Richard, let me interrupt you with a question. Yeah. Is this issue of reflexive reactivity related to what Marcus Aurelius was talking about when he was espousing the Stoic philosophy of standing back and witnessing and making decisions separate from the emotional reactivity to the way they talked about a kind of being engaged with the world, but at the same time being standing back from the world in order to respond rather than react. I see some connection Absolutely. between what you're saying and that and the Stoics. Absolutely. And indeed, Stoicism is a first cousin to this idea. It is absolutely. Ah. So it's, it's not to be stoic because stoicism takes the view that you need to step back, that's good, and somehow there be a rational actor. Now, actually, you can go further. And this is the only difference between the Buddhist view and a stoic view. So the Buddhist view says, actually, you can release your innate intelligence. Your innate intelligence, your common sense, is being entrapped by all this reactivity. You don't have to appeal to rationality. You can actually become responsive, creative in the light of all this input. You don't just have to stay as a detached observer, which is what Stoicism so, yes. Now, but what is fascinating about Marcus Aurelius, and this is really the whole rub of the whole thing, Marcus Aurelius, 150 AD. This is 19, nearly, or 1900 years ago. Get my math right. <laughs> 1900 years ago. Yet he could have written that thing yesterday. That means humanity at a fundamental level is not changing. Yes. But what is changing is we've got better weapons, better guns, more efficient technology. This is seriously dangerous. Now, we're not changing because we are not addressing reactivity. It is possible to address reactivity as a basic life skill, and it should be taught. It is not difficult to learn. And so this is what this book is about. This book is about, hey, guys, realize that the world, 
full of quasars, black holes, quantum mechanics, whatever, Gaza, all the world problems, everything that you read about is an inference. It is not actually what you are experiencing. What you are actually experiencing is five senses, thoughts, and imaginations. That is all. And if you don't get knowledge of that actual base of experience, you are vulnerable to being manipulated by extremely efficient advertorial devices, which now surround us on all sides. And it is going to get worse, not better. But the good news is you can learn this skill quickly. This is not a complicated skill to learn. And what you're saying is that with the advance of technology, please correct me if I misread you here, uh, with the advance of technology, there are more and more devices grabbing our advertisement, our adverts, that's more and more things are pulling our attention away so that the sixth thing that we add, which is our imagination, is getting distorted more and polluted more rather than being more acute? Well, I wouldn't actually put it quite that way because the sixth thing you mention, our thoughts and imaginations, is also another element of our experience. We infer from that a term called I and another one called me. Actually, neither I nor me exists in experience. They are brought to experience by a process of inference. You go, I was there. But I was there is actually a memory statement. I was there. Right. I was there is a memory because you're talking about the past tense. But when you go, I am here, it's yes. a very interesting thing. You suddenly realize that being here doesn't require I. There's just here. Just like when I talk to you, I don't see you and the guy inside who says I. I just see you. There's only one thing there. There's one person. But we always make it two. We make it me and my experience. But actually, there is just my experience. That's what's really happening. So the sixth gate is also something that can be examined. And in fact, it is of enormous value to examine the sixth gate. Now, of course, that's what psychotherapy does, isn't it? I mean, psychotherapy talks about all the experiences you had when you were a kid and all that stuff. Yes, it does. It just, this goes a little bit further. It says, yes, you've had all well, these experiences. I got to interrupt a little bit yeah. because my, my primary profession is I'm a clinical psychologist. Oh, there you go. And so not all of us dwell into the childhood and the past. Some of us are interested in exactly what's going on at the moment between the patient and the doctor in the existential now. So, okay. so let's, to, let's just look. Okay, now now let's go for this. There is a there is a word in our language. It's called recognition. Now, recognition is part of common sense. We cognize, we recognize. In recognizing something, you know what it is. What's actually happened is the primary sense impression has been analyzed and compared with a remembered one. 
and it's been given a name, a word, a description, a person, whatever. I, I recognize you. We always say rep, yes. but actually it's recognize. You can actually measure how long that takes. That takes about 200 milliseconds. So between cognition and recognition is a significant gap of time, which means that the here and now that everyone talks about as if it's actually present is not. Actually, we are at best about 400 milliseconds behind the here and now. Two finger clicks at all times. It never changes. And the reason is because we need time to cognize and then time to recognize. Now, the cognitive element is not really where the problem lies. The problem is in the recognitive element. The recognitive element is where the conditioning is occurring. Because in that process of recognition, we are generating a map based upon our memory. And our memory is full of all kinds of stuff. Accidental, most of it where we come from, where we were brought up, what our parents said to us, we were small, all of our experiences, our worldview, all that kind of stuff. Now, if we are unconscious of all of that, our recognition is unreliable. We make a best fit. So what the Stoics do is they say, well, make a best fit. When it's always going to be a bit unreliable, make a best fit. Okay, that's not bad advice. So going on the right direction. Actually, you can go a bit further. You can see it. And if you see it, something profound happens. Because suddenly you go, wow, that's just my opinion. That is a moment of clarity that rings like a bell. That is my opinion. Now, that clarity is called in the old language, vipassana, seeing clearly. You suddenly see Clearly, your common sense for once is not being boom, 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 all its reactivity. You're seeing clearly. Now, that seeing clearly releases something quite magical. Point one, you can no longer be pulled this way and that randomly. Of course, you're going to fall back into it. But nonetheless, you have a recourse back into a place where you're not being pulled this way and that. And two, you can become creative. Now, what that means is you're no longer trapped by an increasingly narrow view, which comes from what you've learned. And of course, the older you get, you know, you and I are not exactly young. The older you get, the narrower your view becomes. Because, of course, your memory is full of reinforcement. And you gradually find your view can open. You can do things in a different way. There might be other solutions that are right there in front of you you never saw. All of this is possible once reactivity is understood. And that's what meditation is for. Once you've done that and you've achieved vipassana, you have, a, you have retaken a fundamental element of your humanity back from what is essentially a mechanical processor. And there is a very real sense in which much of our cognition is quite literally mechanical. And indeed, Google and all these clever people with their computers can more or less predict what you're going to do with regard to that mechanical element of your cognition. But there is another element that is not 
mechanical. And that other element is what we call common sense. That just has clarity of view. And recovering your own clarity of, of view is literally like recovering the heart of your being. And so although this book has got this slightly, I agree, I never really quite liked the title, Learn to Meditate in Three Minutes a Day, Let's Cut All the Corners. Absolutely not. This is about a very simple path to recovering your humanity. And your humanity is not the next thing you buy on Apple. It is not how you look on a mobile phone. It is not even how concerned you are about events in Gaza. That is not where your humanity resides. And getting back the heart of our being is of intense value. And it transforms everything. Because all we have are five senses, thoughts, and imaginations. If you learn about them, you transform all of your experience. It is that fundamental. Actually, it's more fundamental than reading and writing. This is literally the first thing we should be learning. Unfortunately, we are never taught it. And this is because scientific materialism makes a truth claim that's based on the idea that our personal experience is unreliable. That is the basis of the scientific truth claim. Your personal experience is unreliable. We give you inferential techniques to tell you the actual truth of things. But they never say, oh, but those are inferences. <laughs> if you put that little bit on the back, then you land up going, okay, so thanks for all this information. Thanks for all the great technology, but I still have work to do. Because but science, science, also, science also takes into account the sixth sense, because you know as a physicist that I think it was the astronomers who first pointed out to us that that which we see, we are adding to. Sure. And so when we see stars in the distance, we're adding to what we see by who we are. Isn't that correct? That was a very fundamental aspect of, of, uh, of physics, th that understanding that we're adding to what we see, whether it's through a telescope or through a microscope. So oh, there, is, there is... I've got what? no issue with that at all. And I'm, of course, many, many scientists have said this. And indeed, you can yeah. go to any bookshop and you will find a whole bookshelf of 101 Ways to Be Happy written by neurophysiologists or whatever, <laughs> clinical this and you know, neurophysiology that. But unless you do something yourself, these yes. books are useless. They are literally... No, but I'm, I'm, saying that, I'm saying there's agreement with what you're saying. I think a lot of scientists agree with what you're saying. And and I'm, question. I'm not I'm not in any way against science. All I so, want is the person to do something, the actual person. That's to say, if you meditate, you're not interested in the external world. So look, meditation is about doing something for yourself. I'm all for external knowledge. I am a research scientist with a doctorate. I am I ran a laboratory for 14 years. I know about biophysics, but no amount of scientific knowledge will ever tell you about your own experience. There's actually a very, very important and simple philosophical article written about this by a wonderful philosopher called Thomas Nagel. And Nagel writes in plain English. So this is one of those things you can read by a proper philosopher 
is called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And Nagel does a little thought experiment. You can look this up on the internet. It's a great thing. He says, okay, let's gather every bat zoologist, every bat environmentalist, every bat ecologist, every bat anatomist, every bat behaviorist. We will make an encyclopedia about bats. It'll be thousands of pages long. But no matter how big that encyclopedia is, you will never know what it's like to be a bat. The only way you will find out what it's like to be a bat is to be a bat. Now, let's look at alienation. One of the main features of modernity, alienation is when you don't know what it's like to be me. I feel alienated. I don't feel I know who I am. The only way you will find out what it's like to be you is to explore your own experience. I don't care how many books scientists write about the brain. It makes no difference whatsoever. You need to find out what it's like to be you. Meditation is exactly that. It's finding out what it's like to be me. Now, because of our reactivity, our reflexive reactivity, we're being stirred up all the time by things that irritate us, things we want, things we don't want, things we feel we have to do. And that stirring up is making us muddled. It's like we're a glass of water with mud in it that's all cloudy. As we learn to calm, the water clears and suddenly we can see our experience. That clarity of mind is discovering what it's like to be you. Then you can say, well, now I know what it's like to be me. Where am I? And what you'll find out is you're within this incredible device that is making a map for you continuously of your experience. And you'll be able to see that map. That can become something you can see. That releases your innate intelligence. Your innate intelligence is otherwise imprisoned in reactivity. Now, this is a you know, this is an ancient idea, but it had a modern incarnation. The famous philosopher Wittgenstein said the task of philosophy is to release our natural intelligence from its bewitchment by language. And this map is full of words. It's full of named things. Now, these things that are named are recognized from sense impressions that have no name. That's to say it's part of the map. Gaining insight into our reflexive map making is one of the greatest discoveries any human being can make, if not the greatest. Because until we see the map, truly, we don't know who we are. We're literally living in a model without seeing the model being made. And this, to me, is a fundamental insight. It's so deep and it's so simple that you land up going, why doesn't everybody see this? Well, honestly, it took me almost my whole life to see this and realize how true it is. It is not immediately obvious.
And that's because the map is so sophisticated and arises so quickly that we never see it being made. So we think it's real. So we say, oh, I, you know, this is it, the here and now in the world. There's me in the world now. But all these statements are actually map references. They don't reflect actuality. They reflect a model of actuality. This is where Richard, Richard are you imply are you implying that through meditation we can see something as if we're seeing it for the first time without relying on all the recognizing and bringing all the stuff from the past into play when we're looking at it? Yes, of course. So just like when you were 17 and you opened the window and there was the world, the world was your oyster. You didn't have any ideas about it. It was just, whoa, there it is, ready to go. You can get that back. That joie de vivre can come back. That is ability that what, to breathe. Is that, what the, is that what, the, what the Buddhists mean when they say beginner's mind? Yes, beginner's mind. Exactly. Beginner's that. mind. Beginner's mind. You can okay. refresh yourself. I think we want to now. I think we want to now give our listeners a, a little taste of the three minute a day program. So give us a little taste to whet the appetite, so people will give this a try, like I am, by putting the little light on my chest. I have a little electric light, a little electric candle, actually. That's safer than a regular candle. So I put it on my chest and I lay back and I stare at the candle and I've got a clock set for three minutes. <laughs> that isn't going to work. You have to watch a live candle. I need a uh, live candle. You do. Yeah. And oh, I'll I'm, so, I'm so <laughs> glad I, I'm so glad I asked. Oh, great. Book, but okay. So look, we can, we have the first thing we need to do is to establish a relationship with our attention. Now, we've all learned to pay attention, normally by being told to pay attention. So the first step in any meditation practice is to choose an object of attention and pay attention to it. And so I start the book with a candle. And the reason I say light an actual candle is because a candle is a moving object. It's not still. It moves. Sometimes it flickers. It does all kinds of interesting stuff. So it's a much more interesting meditation object than a light bulb, which is just a flat light. So oh, my, ele my electric candle flickers. <laughs> no, but that, if it, if it, well, if it flickers nicely. Yes, I'll, I, I have a regular candle I can use. I think you'll find a regular candle a much more interesting object. And... So the first bit of meditation is that. Now, of course, I can't do that over a Zoom call because I can't show a candle lit and go one on my desk. But what I can do is do the way most people associate meditation with the sensation of the breath on the tip of the nose. For some reason, that's called mindfulness meditation, which it is not at all. It is shamatha meditation. And really, this is a very annoying thing that's happened because the traditions got all muddled up because people aren't using terms properly. So this experience of breathing and feeling the breath on the tip of the nose 
is another place you can apply your attention. So for three minutes, now three minutes is actually quite a long time. You know, people say, oh, three minutes, three minutes is nothing. Okay, let's do three minutes and let's see how long three minutes actually is. Because most folk go, three minutes, what are you talking about? Nothing at all, it must be snake oil. Not at all. Sit in your chair, wherever you are, back straight if you can, preferably not lying down because lying down you're likely to go to sleep. We will do three minutes on my old-fashioned stopwatch here. And all I want you to do is close your eyes and feel, breathe through your nose and feel a kind of cool sensation at the tip of the nose as you breathe in. And there's a cool sensation as you breathe out. It's like a sensation of touch. This is one of the five gates, the sensation of touch. And all I want you to do is to advert your attention to touch. That's literally the first step in a meditation journey. The second step will be to take an object that changes in time, preferably a fading bell, and follow it fading into silence. And that develops the second capacity, not merely adverting, but then savoring the fading sound. Now, I can't do that over Zoom because, again, the background noise reduction is going to cut out the sound before it fades to silence. Then again, you need to get a bell and do that. Having done those two things, we can then move further forward into looking at other elements of our experience. We're literally reintroducing ourselves to what it's like to be Richard Dixie. I'm actually finding out because I'm attending to my own senses. And this is something we never do. We just don't. And as a result, we get alienated from ourselves. So meditation is all about this very, very simple and fundamentally simple activity of attending to actuality. Now, I'm sure that their viewers are going to say, but the real world is out there. I'm, going, I'm not making any comment about what happens out there. All I would say to those people is, hey, the only actuality you have or will experience or do experience now is one of your five senses or thoughts and imaginations. Don't talk to me about the real world. Because for you, the real world is one of the five senses or thoughts and imaginations. There is nothing else. And this is not arguable. It really isn't. And no scientist would actually take issue with it. It's the word real I'm taking issue with. Because you can talk about an inference, but don't tell me the inference is real. It is always going to be an inference. There's always a chance it's wrong. And indeed, all our theories of space and time, etc., are modifiable. And people say, well, how come you physicists are changing your mind about things? Well, that's because they're inferences. They're not real. They're just ideas that might be real. But what is real 
is our five senses, thoughts, and imaginations. Those are the only things we ever, ever experience. So, so what, what those, you're saying, in effect, is you can go along for a long time thinking the world is flat, but suddenly somebody figures out that it's round, and so now you better readjust your thinking and your understanding. Sure. But that doesn't make it. That doesn't mean the world is round is real. It means the inference of a round, a round world is, is now taken over as the new as the new reality. No, 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 no. Careful, careful, careful. Let's be precise here. No the inference. The inference that the world is round. Yes, is a better fit to the data than the inference that the world is flat. Actually, we now think the world isn't round. It's an oblate spheroid. So it's not even round, actually. It's slightly bulging in the middle. And now, with further precise data, we think it's vibrating. We you, go you on know, and on with these inferences. Some time, ag some time ago, somebody asked me what I would like to have put on my tombstone. And I said, reality is a consensual hunch. I think that sort of fits in with what you're saying, doesn't it? Absolutely. It fits in with what you're saying. But for one thing, reality is a consensual hunch, but you can know what it's like to be you. In addition. That's where we go beyond stoicism. Stoicism just says reality is a consensual hunch. Take the middle ground. Don't get too excited. We're going a little bit further. We're saying, yeah, that's all good. And you can know what it's like to be you. Oh, I'm good. And it's that second bit that leads to cognitive freedom. The first bit leads to worldly wise stoic views, which is fine and is better than being a crazy guy. But you can go further. And it's this going further that I think is so important. And it's so easy to do. It's not like it's a complicated thing to do. And so learning about your own experience is not to deny the existence of the world. It's not to under, undermine scientific insight. Nothing like that at all. It's merely to start exploring what it's like to be me. And as we do, we find out we have all this capacity, which is being covered over by our reactivity. We're being pulled out of shape by our reactivity. It's really quite tragic. And seeing that makes you compassionate to others. You suddenly go, wow, you know, there's a lot more good news in the world than there is bad news. And once you start getting in touch with your own base, you realize that. You realize things aren't quite as bad as they look. Our map maker is only interested in bad news, which is why we only read about bad news and think the world's going to hell and all this sort of stuff. But honestly, when you get back to your actuality, we're nice people. It's very rare indeed if you fall down in the street that the next guy that walks past you doesn't pick you up. Why is that? Because human beings are basically good. We are human, basically good. We're basically good tribal animals. But we also have to acknowledge that while 95 or more percent of us are good, cooperative, collaborative tribal animals, there is a very small percentage of us that are predators. Who of course, would, who that would doesn't control. What? It doesn't make us predators. No. You see, this is where we get to the same thing. So you, you read about Kim Il-jong or someone, and people say, there, human beings are all predators. Look at this guy. 
No, 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 no. They're the exception to the rule. Those guys are the rare ones. The nice guys are the normal ones. Yes, I agree with you totally, Richard. But we also must deal with the fact that these predators, the predators very often are able to attract large number of followers, such as the situation we have in the United States. Where are you located right now? I'm in Berkeley. Oh, you're in the United States. Okay. I'm 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 nearly in the United States. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm about three hours uh, northwest of you in Mendocino County. Okay. Now, so you know that we have in the United States now a demagogue who would like to be a dictator who evidently has a base of followers that might be as much as 30 or 35% of the population. And whereas that 30 or 35% may be basically friendly tribal collaborative animals, if if their populist leader gets into power, they're not going to be so friendly anymore because he's going to be directing them to do things that aren't particularly friendly and cooperative to other human beings. And that's okay. been the, that has been the history of the world, hasn't it? Whether it's uh, Julius Caesar, Caesar crossing the Rubicon or, or uh, Napoleon or uh, Hitler, Mussolini, these kind of, of fo- these a small percentage of predators can do a lot of damage to the c- collective. They can. So what's the solution? Okay. We have two choices. We can say, the demagogue's followers are bad people. And as bad people, they have to be controlled, put away, crushed, disempowered, whatever we think. Right. Or we can say, actually, I suspect if I fell down in front of one of them, they would also pick me up. I, they've been misled. Their basic nature is fine. It's they've been misled. Agreed. Now, Okay, so if the latter is true, then the only solution is to encourage them to explore their own experience, just like I need to explore my own experience. There is no other solution. Otherwise, we are accepting the bad guy as bad, when actually I am very, very confident that the bad guy we say is bad is just confused. And boy, we can see that in this particular example. He's well, a very confused person. What's yeah? appealing about your putting what you're putting forth with three minutes a day is that it's possible for the average person to put in three minutes a day, whereas to ask the average person to meditate for a half hour a day or a half hour twice a day is out of the question because the average qu- person is dealing with putting food on the table and paying the rent and, and fixing the refrigerator. They don't have time. They don't have the consciousness. But three minutes a day, you might be able to get to them. It would be a beautiful thing. Exactly. And if you do the three minutes, and this is it, I say there's a simple contract in this book. I say this. I want to tell you what this word means. And the first word is adverted concentration. Now, I can't, like if I have a watch, I can say, this is a watch. and I can point to it. But if I talk about adverted concentration, there's nothing to point to. What you have to do is say, this is the experience of adverted conscience of concentration. Do this for three minutes, only three minutes. Just do it for three minutes. Having got the idea of what adverted concentration is, we can then talk about it. Now, people have got a referent 
for that term. And then we can talk about engaged concentration and have another experience we give. And so we go on through a period of three minutes a day for 14 weeks. I don't want people to say, oh, I meditated for an hour a day. Because the honest truth is, most people, when they try to meditate for long periods, go to sleep. All they do is they sit in the idea of meditation and then essentially sleep on their cushion, which is very relaxing. And I mean, no, why not? Fantastic. But they're just asleep. So they're not actually doing anything. I'd be much happier for people to do it for three minutes than think they're doing it for three hours, because honestly, they're very unlikely that they actually are. And to me, this is a key. Now, it's, this is where we get something intensely important. If I hold up a piece of chocolate and I say to you, I have this stuff called chocolate. It's brown. It's sweet. It's a bit gooey. It melts in your mouth. Whatever language I use, and I can write you an encyclopedia about chocolate, you will not know what chocolate is until I give you that piece of chocolate. That's to say the experience is beyond words. All experiences are beyond words. Every one. So again, the idea that words capture reality is utterly crazy. And anybody who thinks about it for even a moment realizes how nuts that is. We have to get to experience. Now, we're living in a modernity where we're being told everything's a computer simulation. This is the latest utterly bonkers idea that, that it makes a good story. So you read about it the whole time. Again, it is an utterly ridiculous notion because it literally implies that there is a program, an a logarithm that's generating an image and the image is somehow an experience. Experiences happen before images, silly. Experiences are primary. You can't yes. tell me it's an A logarithm. Well, the this issue, Richard, if I may, is that other than words, until we have a way of downloading experience onto a chip, which can then be transferred to another person's consciousness, we don't have a way of communicating experience other than words, do we? Yeah. Okay. So now we get to the three minute. Why am I like a snake oil salesman? Because I'm saying, look, I am going to give you an experience, which you only have to do for three minutes, and you will get a referent for that word. I don't want you to do it for longer. I want it to be really, really easy. And I want these experiences to be really small. So that way we cut through this problem. Now, words are, of course, extremely valuable because they designate, but they do not make what they designate. They merely point at it. Yes. And famously, it's always said, when you use a finger to point at the moon, please look at the moon. Don't look at the finger. Here it is. So we are trying to get beyond the finger to the moon. Now, in meditation, this is 100% important because what it's like to be me is beyond words. But the posh way it said is it's non-dual. Oh, it's non-dual, non-conceptual. But that all sounds very posh. Actually, the proper word is it's an experience. Experiences are all non-dual and non-conceptual. Every one of them. Words merely designate them. They don't replace them. So, 
books can be very, very misleading. There's nothing more misleading than reading books about enlightenment and, you know, mystical states of mind and all this stuff, because they give us a bunch of words when what you really want is the experience. And so a lot of people are full of words. And nowadays, all these words have got into our vocabulary. You find politicians talking about karma. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> and there, so you get this happening and nirvana and all these words in the common language. But the honest truth is, unless you have experiences to which those words refer, they are almost without value. In fact, they may be positively harmful. But so if, what do I do then, Richard? If I have an experience and I want to share it with my friend Richard Dixie. Okay. What you do is you recall the experience and you describe it. Then you have to find a way for my friend Richard Dixie to have that experience themselves. And when they do, you then go, there you are. It was one of those. You've done it. Merely describing it doesn't do a whole bunch to them. In fact, they may even have a completely different experience. I think it's the same thing. Well, and that's I, I, honestly why a lot of religion goes completely haywire because the founder of the religion says one thing and their followers understand another. And hell, here it goes. You get the chaos that then ensues. So it's important to keep it simple. And to me, meditation is the fundamental life skill. And you can break it down into very simple components. And when you do, you realize, oh, I see, that's what those guys were doing. They, were, they had all this very precise terminology. It wasn't because they were anal. What they were doing was trying to get precise experiences, which they could transmit to other people. So they would get the same base. And the base I'm talking about is the base of experience itself prior to recognition. It is literally the awareness of cognition prior to recognitive naming. And that is the fundamental split. Okay. If we can do it, it'd be big. I have, a, I have a question for you. Yeah. Richard Dixie goes on a safari in Africa. Yeah. Richard Dixie takes motion pictures of the safari while he is there. Richard Dixie shows those motion pictures to Richard Miller. How close am I in watching those motion pictures, let's say even in 3D, to having the experience that you had? Okay, not at all. And the reason is because for Richard Dixie to take those safari photographs, Richard Dixie probably had a film crew that you don't see in the picture and he had a camera in front of his face. So whereas Richard Miller sees the lion, Richard Dixie is seeing his Sony webcam. Is the answer to that? <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, you know, when you watch these wildlife programs, you, you hear about these guys. They spend a whole year living in a hut and they get three minutes of a snow leopard. We get the snow leopard. So we're thinking, my God, he must be having snow leopards coming at him left and right. The track is he spent most of the whole year sitting there doing nothing for that three minutes. They always say it's a bit like war. One always has this fantasy that war is people fighting all the time. Most of the time, even major armies are sitting around smoking cigarettes and eating lunch. It's the same thing. Actuality and how it is represented are different. And we are being fooled continuously by what we see in the media. Of course, 
we're getting the samphorized view as if we were there. But of course, we weren't there. And if we were there, we would have seen the film crew and we would have seen the lights and we would have spent three months living in a cave waiting for it to happen and all of that. That was the actuality. Now, I'm not just saying it's not worth seeing snow leopards on the TV. I, no, I, it's fantastic. But don't think that's real. It's not so real. Do you advise young people to go out in the world and experience? Sure. 100%. Yes. Absolutely. What else yes. is there? Of course. Now, you know. Well, because- what else is there is those of us who live inside our heads and make up the world. And we know we're making up the world, but we have a good time making it up inside. Yeah, that's because we're old. I am, <laughs> I am quite confident that just like me, you got out there when you were full of hormones and spunk and vigor. Vigor. And you did all that stuff. Now you can regurgitate it in the wisdom of your old age, just like I do. That's perfectly normal. That's, that's all part of the cycle of life. There's no particular reason, and this is another sad thing, for old people to pretend they're young people. You know, like, I'm, I'm still as young. I still feel as young as I did when I was 20. It's like, oh, forget it. That's <laughs> ridiculous. You know, that is just silly. We old people have had the amazing experiences. We can now relive them. And indeed, our memory is as much real as our current experience because our current experience is a memory. It's actually a 250 millisecond old memory. So we can remember events in the past and re-enter them as if they are real. And this is a remarkable capacity that we as human beings have. We can literally become full of mind, mindful. We land up far more than the here and now. We land up carrying everything that happened and bringing it. That is, again, a capacity that arises once our actuality becomes something that we are engaged with. So this idea that the here and now is primary is a nonsense because the here and now to which that term refers is itself a memory. And a lot of the mindfulness movement has not understood this. And so people think they can somehow see the here and now like some kind of knife edge that's always passing, you know, <laughs> get this feeling of people being a little bit constipated, trying to catch this fleeting thing. This is all a complete misunderstanding of what these traditions are trying to point to. Homo sapiens is an extraordinary phenomenon because Homo sapiens is a knowing thing. Now, I can pick up my glasses case, it's a thing. I'm a knowing thing. There's something profound about that. We have physicality without question. I can cut my finger off and it's no longer part of my awareness. Clearly, the knowing is different from the thingness. That profound enigma is something that has to be experienced in order to be fully engaged in. No matter what clever language I use, I will never capture that. But that is really our circumstance. We are a knowing thing. And we bring in our knowledge everything that ever happened to us. 
and everything we ever learned and our entire cultural history and basically the whole of humanity. So it's intensely sad to see in modernity this collapsing of our humanity into these ridiculous polarities as our technology gets more and more efficient. Our humanity is being sucked out of us in our reactivity. Yet we remain homo sapiens. We're not going to be taken over by robots that are somehow going to become human or this sort of idea. This is all a misunderstanding. And it comes about because of the disconnection between ourselves and our experience. And once we get that connection back, one of these issues become a lot less pressing and other things become of value. In particular, our humanity, our kindness, our creativity, our ability to engage and respond rather than react comes to the fore. I think that's, that's a good place to stop for today, Richard, on what you just said. But what, before we go and before I thank you, will you promise to come back for another interview? Of course. I'm delighted. I would very much like to pick this up because there, I have a lot of questions, but I didn't want to stop you. And also, I want to discuss with you some of my theories on why I think humanity has figured out a way to become immortal and how that immortalization is going to lead to our extinction and the robots taking over. Okay. So we'll do, we'll, do that. we'll do that in the next interview. For okay. now, I want to say goodbye and thank you. I want to show everybody your book. You've got to read this book. If you read any book in the next period of time, it's worth it. All it, all it says, three minutes a day, it's very little time, and it can have a tremendous benefit because it's being brought to you by a very special person. And as he's not a snake oil salesman. He's not selling, really. He's really trying to share something with you for the benefit of all of us. And if you were sitting here with him, you could feel that as I felt it during the interview. So thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that we broadcast every Tuesday at 9 o'clock and that all of our programs are archived and open source, which means free for all of you. Just as Richard Dixie's work has a workbook that you can get without charge, which is a big statement, all of our programs are free without charge as well. So until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.